You're listening to The Real Investment Show. And good morning. Welcome to Fed Day. That's right. Uh, it's all about Federal Reserve today because that's the big news that's moving markets and uh, the news channels this morning as well. Everybody's talking about the Fed. Uh, yesterday, had their meeting, came out pretty much as expected. No rate hikes. And it's beginning their taper this month of $15 billion a month for quantitative easing. Now, remember, following the, the pandemic shutdown, the Federal Reserve started buying $120 billion a month. Now, we've been doing this since March of 2020. So here we are more than a year later, March 2021. Here we are in November, and we've been buying $120 billion a month over the course of that time frame. So, you know, close to $2 trillion here pumped into the economy. Expansion of the balance sheet, of course, that liquidity has been flowing you know, into the financial markets. And, and again, there's a big debate between individuals as to whether you know, the, the Federal Reserve bond purchases actually go directly into stocks. And, and there's a big debate on Wall Street. It's like, no, the Fed doesn't actually facilitate buying stocks. It's just, you know, they're, they're putting money into bank reserves and the banks are lending that money out. Well, Maybe the case, but if you take a look at bank loans, those have been drying up very sharply here over the last couple of years. Because again, why should banks take a lot of risk lending out money to individuals that may not pay it back versus using that liquidity for their prop desk where they can buy and sell equities and support financial markets? And again, if you take a look at, as a good example, take a look at Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, JP Morgan, uh, that have major prop trading desks. Take a look at their earnings on a quarter over quarter basis. Where do their earnings come from? And if you take a look at just the latest earnings, their earnings are coming from two places. One, moving loan loss reserves back onto their balance sheet. So when uh, during the March 2020 crisis, the banks moved a lot of cash into loan loss reserves in expectation of there being a lot of defaults. Well, that didn't occur because of $1,400 checks to households and rent support and moratoriums on rent and everything else. So wasn't a lot of, of defaults that occurred. So now all that money that's sitting over those loan loss reserves and bringing that back onto the balance sheet, well, that acts as income for earnings per share and improves their balance sheet. But they didn't really make any more money, right? The money was just sitting on the sidelines. The other side of where their money's coming from is where? They're trading revenues. That's right. Most of the income from these banks come from their trading revenues. So the question is this, if the money from the Federal Reserve does not wind up in the markets through the bank's prop desk, then how is it that the trading reserves of these banks are so strong, right? But again, this is the big argument. But whether or not you think that money actually goes from the Federal Reserve in directly into the financial markets through the banks, or if it's just a psychological support that when investors think the Fed is doing this, they know that the Fed, when the Fed is doing QE, markets rise. So they just psychologically, kind of like Pavlov's dogs, right? They ring the bell, they go out and buy stocks. So whether or not it's a physical, actual function of cash flowing into the financial markets, or whether it's just a psychological support for market, it really is irrelevant because it's the, it's the effect of QE on markets lifting asset prices and in fact, there's a very high correlation between the size of the Fed's balance sheet and the rise in the market. So again, if we look back at the financial markets over the course of the last decade, strip out buy, uh, stock buybacks, which have made up about 40% of the increase in the markets, and strip back the Fed's QE, 
the markets are going to be basically are not much higher than they were at the peak of the market in 2008. That's how much support has been driven into the markets financially from these two areas. So again, as we talk about this, and, and Michael Leibowitz will be joining me this morning, the Fed made two important comments that we want to talk about today in particular. One, they talked about, well, inflation may still be transient. They still are leaning towards this idea that these inflationary pressures in the economy, a function of the supply chain disruption, is simply a function or a side effect of the COVID, the, the COVID problem, right? The, the COVID pandemic. So, and as soon as we get the pandemic under control at some point in the future, then these supply chain issues will resolve. But is that really the case? The other side is, is they're not really worried about the economy because employment is still not back to full employment levels. We still have more room to go. So again, no reason to raise high, uh, to hike interest rates here, despite the fact that we're running over five, almost five and a half percent inflation right now in the economy. And of course, individuals are certainly feeling that pressure through higher gas prices, higher food prices, those type of things. So again, now this was a fairly dovish statement by the Fed yesterday. And, and again, they, the market was already pretty much primed and prepped that the Fed was going to announce a reduction of their quantitative easing, their bond buying of $15 billion a month. That's been well telegraphed here, so no surprise. The one thing that did surprise, I think, the markets a little bit yesterday <clears throat> was the fact of this attitude towards, well, we're really not back to full employment yet. And the problem for this, and something that Mike and I will talk about today, is that the definition of full employment, what is actually full employment in the U.S. economy, may be changing. And this could very well put the Fed behind the curve. But again, that kind of dovish sentiment that came out from the Fed yesterday in terms of their announcement did lift stocks. And we are now over two standard deviations above the 50-day moving average. This is historically a very overbought position for markets. If you take a look at our overbought indicators, they are back to very overbought levels as well. And our money flow indicator, very elevated. So again, you know, when we talk about the markets and risk management and the things to do with your portfolio, right now there's a lot of exuberance in the markets. And since we had that correction back in uh, September, October, that 5%, We've now completely recovered that correction. We're back to all-time highs, back to very extended levels. And now, this doesn't mean the market's about to have a major correction or a major crash, but from the standpoint of just managing some risk in your portfolio, if you didn't like that 5% correction back in September and October, we're going to have more of those. And so if you didn't like that correction, well, there's too much risk in your portfolio. Think about reducing some of the ex exposure you have to the markets and lower that volatility. And things, if you've got some stocks, and, and Mike and I have been working on this all week in our own portfolios, we've got some stocks that have done exceptionally well. Ford, NVIDIA, Albemarle. These stocks have had terrific runs. They are very elevated. And we just went in and reduced those positions a little bit, just took some profits off. Now we still own the positions, a big chunk of those positions we still own. We just took a little bit of money off the table because eventually those positions will correct and then we'll buy some more of those shares back at better prices. So again, you know, just because you own a position doesn't mean that you can't reduce it. 
one of the mistakes that a lot of investors make is they think that you have to sell everything. And then once you sell it, you can't ever buy it back. There's no rule. There's no law in Wall Street that says once you sell something, you can't buy it back. And there's no rule that says you can't harvest some of the crops. You know, we talk a lot about managing a portfolio like a garden. And, you know, if you plant a garden and, and it grows and bears fruit or vegetables and you don't harvest those fruits and vegetables, they'll rot on the vine. And if you don't weed the garden, sell your losers and laggards, the things that aren't working, the bad decisions you made, if you don't clean those out of the garden, eventually the weeds will take over the garden. And this is just a very simple analogy of how to manage your portfolio. And if you're not doing that, you really kind of set yourself up for larger losses at some point. I know, I know the idea of larger losses really don't seem like a possibility at this point, right? Because we just don't have corrections anymore in the markets, but eventually we will. And if you haven't properly prepared your garden, you're going to suffer much larger losses. And this is why we talk a lot about risk management, portfolio management rules. If you go to our website, realinvestmentadvice.com, we have plenty of things under the search for rules. Be right back after the break with Michael Leibowitz. You know, it's been kind of an interesting 24 hours with the Federal Reserve. Michael Leibowitz joining me this morning. Uh, to dig a little bit into the the statement from Jerome Powell and, uh, again, kind of where potentially what markets are thinking are, is going to happen versus what may actually happen may be very, two very different things. Michael Leibowitz, uh, welcome to the show this morning. How are you? Great. Thank you. I, I was listening. You were very riled up in that first segment, so I'm not sure what I can add. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting. There's a, lot, there's a lot really to kind of unpack here. I, let's, let's jump into the unemployment part, uh, first of all, and then because, uh, you know, in the next segment, we'll get into the inflation side of this. You know, I thought it was very interesting. You know, the Federal Reserve is now talking about the fact that we're not back to full employment yet. And, you know, when in, in 2020, right before the pandemic shutdown, we had just marked a record low unemployment here in the U.S. of, you know, a little bit over 3 uh, percent, something really more of an anomaly than anything else. And, you know, now the Federal, the Federal Reserve is now kind of anchored to that 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 very low level of unemployment in the U.S. economy and saying, okay, that's where full employment is. We need to get back to there first before we do anything else. And that could really be a bit of a risky maneuver here because, again, full employment may not be the same now post-pandemic. We saw a lot of people leave the workforce that may not ever come back again. Um, people's dynamics of work has changed as well. People, you know, a lot of people are working multiple part-time jobs that don't count as you know being employed under the way the BLS calculates employment. So, kind of, what are your thoughts here? Do you think the Fed is maybe setting their mark too high for for uh, what they consider full employment? Yeah. Well, you know, the question I think is ulterior motives, right? What are they doing? So we know that inflation is running over 5%, their goal is 2%, and one of their two mandates by, the, by, the, uh, by Congress is stable prices. Mm -hmm. Prices aren't stable by any measure. Every measure, even their own PCE, is well above what it should be. And the Fed admits it, right? So the other thing they have on their side is employment. So, you know, we could debate all day if employment is back to where it was, and if I was a lawyer, I feel like I could present both sides of that case and win both sides of that case. Right. Right. Powell statistically is correct. The unemployment rate is four point eight percent. And it was in the low threes. Mm -hmm. 
right? The participation rate is much lower than it was before. Now on the flip side is we have a record number of job quitters. These are people voluntarily leaving their jobs to look for new jobs, right? That's the sign of a healthy market. We have, you know, almost what, 30, 50% more job openings than people that are unemployed. We have more retirees. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people took that opportunity during COVID to retire. So, you know, like you said, Lance, it's there's not an apples and apples comparison to the way things were in 2019. And by the way, from 2015 to 2019, the average unemployment rate was 4.4. We're at 4.8. So, again, I you know, you can kind of make a case both ways, and I think they're strong cases. Uh, but the, the market is for jobs, for employment is very healthy. It may not be tip top health, but it's very healthy. And the fact that the Fed is so dovish that they basically got dragged to the altar to to taper and refused to even talk about raising rates tells you there's more to the story than employment. Right. They, they should be raising rates by now. Right. They should have quit cold turkey on QE like the Bank of Canada did, (laughs) right? like other smaller central banks are doing. They're not. So why is that? And there's two good reasons in their minds why not to do that. The first is asset valuations are predicated on easy money policy, right? There's nothing fundamentally that justifies where the prices of most stocks, most bonds, most assets, houses are at this point. Right. What justifies it? And you said it well in the first part was either the money is somehow leaking into the market or it's just a confidence game. But either way, and you can argue, again, both sides, Mm -hmm. either way, the Fed's behind that. And then the other thing is the debt trap. The Fed has so many so much debt to issue, not just from this current fiscal year, but, you know, you're still paying back all the prior years and you don't pay it back. You pay it back by issuing more debt. Right. And, and then throw in corporate debt and personal debt. And we have a debt problem and we can't afford higher interest rates. So and, and, and I think I think that's really kind of a key, a key point that that is worth reiterating, because I think a lot of people really overlook that one issue more than anything else. You know, we, we you know, there's a lot of analysts, you know, in the markets right now saying, oh, well, interest rates have to go up. You know, the 10 year Treasury rate is has, has got to go up. It's going to be two and a half or three percent or four percent. You know, pick your number. If inflation is five, then, you know, the 10 year Treasury rate should be four percent. You know, what everybody kind of forgets in that analysis, and, and that's not an incorrect statement. And, you know, historically, there's a very high correlation between inflation and interest rates and economic growth and those type of things. Um, you know, the problem I think most people forget is, is that that we have so much debt in the economy and the and, and the economy is driven by debt. And again, to your point, Mike, it's not just the fact we're running twenty nine you know, trillion dollars worth of government debt. We've also got record levels of household debt. We've got record levels of mortgage debt, record levels of auto debt. You know, basically the entire sustainability of the U.S. economy is a function of debt increases over the course of the last really 30, 40 years. Consumption has far outpaced incomes, and that's been a function of people being able to access continuing, you know, well, easier, easier rates of credit. I can access credit easier, and the and the interest rate on that debt has been steadily falling. And so the problem now is if interest rates do go up, 
you have a major problem in the economy because it will stop the entire economic activity. People won't buy cars. They'll postpone refinancing their house. I mean, who's going to refinance their house at a higher rate? Who's going to buy a house at a higher rate? The psychological impact on consumption is dramatic. So the Fed's really in a, in a bind here between hiking rates and and the underlying economic growth environment. And, and really, while they may be focusing on the headline function of employment being a, being not back yet to full employment, I think the bigger risk is that, empl- that and, and they're aware of this, is that economic growth is slowing down rapidly and hiking interest rates is a break on economic activity. Right. And it always has been. Uh, the problem is they are gunning the engines right now. And yes, they're going to taper QE by 15 billion. But even after that, they're still gunning the engines. Mm-hmm. They're, they're doing they're taking off the, the minimum possible. Right. Right. You know, you can kind of think about this the other way. What if employment was all the way, all the, the traditional statistics of employment were back to where they were in 2019, right? Mm-hmm. But inflation, let's say CPI or PCE, were running just a, ha- a hair under 2%, right? The Fed's stated objective is 2%, but on occasion they've said they wanted to run a little hotter than 2% to make up for years past where it was not up to 2%. So what if we were there? What if we were kind of in an opposite situation where employment was back to exactly where it was in 2019, but inflation was running 1.8%? I guarantee you every word you would hear out of the Fed is we need to get inflation up before we can stop tapering, before we can raise rates. So these are excuses, Lance. They have two quivers to use as excuses, inflation and employment. They certainly can use inflation, Mm -hmm. but employment you know, you can statistically say that Powell is correct. You can, again, also make a case that he is completely misjudging the market, doesn't understand the dynamics. And I'd say he does understand the dynamics. It's the excuse. Right. This is the excuse to keep policy. You know, we use the word we use some huge adjectives like extreme. (laughs) Right. Right. But I don't even think extreme covers what they're doing. If people are really to realize what's going on here, zero interest rates, they're still buying even with their taper, what, 105 billion bonds a month. Right. That's Uh, a crazy pace of purchases that dwarfs what they were doing 10 years ago. Well, and I think, you know, and and again, when you take a look at and, and, you know, we kind of glossed over this this one point, which I think is, you know, the most important point about the economy, which is the labor force participation rate. Um, that labor force participation rate has barely risen from the pandemic lows. And what and, and that's okay, so good. Labor force participation rates come up from the pandemic lows. But what people don't really understand is that labor force participation rate was in the 70s, it's now in the, the low 60s. That was in the, the mid to high 70s back in 2000. And it's been declining. It declined during the uh, dot-com crash. It declined further uh, during the financial crisis. It declined further after the pandemic shutdown. And every time we go through these economic crises type shutdowns, that labor force participation rate gets lower and lower and lower. And that equates to the fact that we have slower rates of economic growth. The, the rate of economic growth back in 2000 was almost 5%. Now we're hoping we can get 2%, and that's a good number. Um, you know, this is, But this is all part of the debt structure. It's all part of this monetary policy that continues to erode economic activity. 
but we don't want no look nobody wants to really face up to that because we all love a rising stock market that's great don't do anything to mess up the stock market is the first principle and the second principle is don't raise interest rates so i can keep financing things at a cheap price right right those are the two fed mandates yeah <laughs> that's really what this comes down to and really it has nothing to do with employment at all so we'll, we'll get to that look after the break i do want to talk uh, touch on a little bit about inflation because he did make some interesting comments uh he's still hanging on to this hat of this idea that inflation is completely transitory and that boy just as soon as we get everybody vaccinated and get this uh get this virus behind us the supply chains will magically disappear and um you know is that really the case we'll come back with michael leibowitz right after the break talk about inflation causes consequences don't go away i'm your host lance roberts be right back headline on CN cnn right now larry summers inflation warning comes true now haunting the white house um you know Inflation is a, is an issue, and this is a, a problem historically for presidents. Uh, you know, regardless of you know party affiliation, whether it's Democrat or Republican. Uh, Jimmy Carter, the most famous, uh, of course, probably when it comes to inf you know rising inflation and presidencies. You know, what do you remember? What do you remember Jimmy Carter for? Inflation, right? <laughs> you know, that's that's his whole legacy. The entire legacy of the Jimmy Jimmy Carter administration was inflation, and and here we are. You know, really very much in the same position now. Inflation is rising uh, for consumers, right? Now, regardless of how you want to measure inflation, whether it's CPI or PCE or trimmed mean PCE or median CPI, I mean, there's, you know, there's a, a you know, 500 different ways to measure inflation in the U.S. economy. What it really comes down to ultimately is the consumer and their ability to maintain their standard of living. So, Here's really the measures of that. One, are wages rising fast enough to compensate for the rise in prices? And that answer right now is no. Uh, well, that depends who you ask, Lance. That, the second thing is, is that when you are trying to just make ends meet, and again, you know, your choice is between your income and going into further in debt, you know, that's a problem. So when consumers go to the gas pump and they fill up the gas pump and, and it's no longer $30 to fill up, it's now $60 to fill up, whatever the number is, or they go to the grocery store and either they can't get what they want because it's simply not available or prices have, have risen markedly, go out to eat. The cost of breakfast has risen more than 30% in restaurants just over the course of the last several months. That's the inflation that consumers feel. So Mike, now to you. What, you know, this is this is a problem for consumers, um, particularly in the economy with inflation. So so let me backtrack a little bit. So the White House only a few days ago said that inflation isn't really a problem because wages are rising faster than inflation. Mm -hmm. Right. We know the answer to that. But that's what they said. And, right. and that shows you how important inflation is. Look, Biden knows and every Democratic uh, Congress congressperson and uh, House rep knows that inflation is the key to their reelection hopes, right? So so the natural response is, yeah, inflation is a little higher, but don't worry, you're making more money. So net net, you're better off. Powell point blank yesterday said he's not worried about inflation because wages are still below the rate of inflation, right? Because that tells him we're not getting even into a spiral of inflation because people are still there's still not enough inflation in wages. 
So there's, you know, everyone has their side and they mm -hmm. use these political rallying calls to to justify things that they're doing. Look, inflation is running more than wages. There are an incredible number of statistics that tell us that. Doesn't mean some people are, are getting or making more, but on average, people are not, right? right? People are losing. They may make 10% more, but they're paying 15% more. Right. And that's what's going on. And, you know, you can look, We Lance and I look at a million stats on inflation and the graphs, they all go up to a different degree, but they're all going up. You just talk to people, right? I mean, regular people, people are telling me this all the time. They're asking me, why is inflation going up? They know that, you know, this is what I do. We, 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 we study this stuff. Right. And they're telling me, you know, all these examples and why, why is the price of, of gasoline over $4 a gallon? Why, why is this? Why is there still no stuff on the shelves? And look, the bottom line is their inflation. And I think what we saw on Tuesday night at the elections is part of that is has to do with inflation, right? Inflation and taxes are the two presidential killers. Right. And we have inflation. There is no doubt about it. And the Fed is not addressing it, right? So, uh, you know, I think one thing that 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 to think about is Biden has slowly been putting, been bringing up the inflation topic. Mm -hmm. At some point, he's going to be putting pressure on Powell to do something about it. Yeah, and, and but this was an interesting kind of point though with the Fed yesterday in terms of their stance on inflation is that he's still kind of focused on this whole idea that, you know, it's transient in nature and that as right. soon as we can get everybody vaccinated and get the Delta variant or the virus under control and you know, get everybody back to normalcy that these supply chain disruptions will magically disappear, but that doesn't really explain, you know, the virus alone doesn't explain a lot of what's happening with the supply chain disruptions. Um, you know, truckers are simply, you know, there's there was articles out yesterday. Truckers are, are realizing that it's not cost effective to go wait 12 hours in line at the port of L.A. to pick up one container and drive it somewhere. You know, there's there's more to this story than just the pandemic virus, even though that's the headline-driven excuse, there seems to be more to the story that's driving the underlying inflation that may not be as transient as Powell expects. Right, and it seems like your example, wages are a big one, right? And when wages go up, corporations, that comes out of corporations, bottom line. Mm -hmm. So what do they do? They raise prices, and that's called a wage price spiral. Right. And that's somewhat what... Uh, Powell was alluding to, but that is going on. And look, this labor market is healthy. Mm -hmm. How how healthy? You know, we we'll we talked about that. We can debate that all day. But for the first time in a long time, workers have power, and they can ask for raises, and they are getting raises. Right. And that will generate some inflation. How much depends on what the economy does. Depends how much power they ultimately have. But that inflation is a real concern. And you know, the other part of this debate is, Lance, what can the Fed really do? Right. Right. Well, they can raise rates. Right. That that will squash inflation because it will limit economic growth because it limits the mm -hmm. amount of debt that that entities, the government or people can take on. But a lot of this is out of their control, too. But right. on the employment side, too. So that's kind of the joke of this whole thing <laughs> is that how much power do they really have? 
and what are they going to do about it and what are their ulterior motives well i think this comes back to something that that we've touched on before which is the fed really is trapped um and and there's more to this story about hiking interest rates than just you know inflation is transient it's going to come down next year and look it may uh, if we do get into a slowdown economically, inflationary pressures will decline. Um, if we do start to head back towards a recessionary spat in the economy, inflation will decline. That's just a, a function of economic growth and supply and demand. So, you know, there, there are certainly reasons to suspect that inflation could well be transient going next year, but the, the economic consequences of that are not good. You, you, in other words, you can't squash inflation and keep economic growth high. Uh, you, you know, those two just don't work together. And I think the Fed's well aware of that. And if you and you know, the big problem for the Fed, to your point, is interest rates. If they begin hiking interest rates, there's a vast number of companies out there right now that are dependent upon extremely low interest rates to finance debt just to stay alive. We call these zombie companies. And those are running at a record level right now. So, you know, the you know, we were talking about the consequences of hiking rates that People won't refinance houses. They won't buy houses. Zillow is a good example. You know, was in the house flipping business for about 30 minutes and figured out that that wasn't a good idea. Um, so can you imagine what happens to a Zillow if interest rates start to go up and mortgage rates start to go up? Can you imagine what happens to the economy when credit card payments, which are variable, start to go up and people have more money going of their disposable income going out to pay credit card debt? And of course, imagine what happens to the stock market if we start having mass bankruptcies because you know these zombie companies can't refinance their debt at low rates. You know, there's so many more problems underlying the market and the economic structure than just inflation. And 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 the Fed, I think the Fed is well aware of this, and they're just looking for an excuse not to hike rates because they know what the consequences are. Right. And Lance, here's the crazy part. Let's just talk about the mortgage market. Mortgage rates go to four percent. There are huge problems in the real estate market. Right. No one's going to be able to sell houses. There's a lot of people in the last year and a half, two years that bought overpriced houses that are sitting on overpriced houses. And what happens if they lose their job? What happens if they lose a source of income? Right. They have these big payments. The price of the house starts declining. They have, you know, negative equity. What do they do? They take their keys, they stick them in an envelope and they mail them in. And that's what happened in 2007, 2008. Yep. And you're kind of setting yourself up for a similar thing once again. Yep. You're propping up asset prices, in this case houses, to levels that don't match the underlying fundamentals, the yep. sustainable fundamentals. Yeah, and you know, and what you brought up is, you know, what is something that actually occurred back in the late 70s and early 80s and it's what called it's called jingle mail for people that don't right. remember that but but back in the 70 late 70s early 80s because of inflation and high interest rates people couldn't afford their houses and they were what mike said is literally putting keys into envelopes and mailing them back to the bank saying hey there's the house take it because i can't afford it and it was called jingle mail and that's where that whole you know keys in the in the envelope sentiment came from. But again, we did see some of that, not directly to that degree in the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, that was where the banks were just kicking in doors of homeowners and taking houses that they didn't even have mortgages on. But that's a different story entirely. <laughs> um, but when we come back from the break, uh, let's switch over to the markets um, because that all this that happened yesterday, right, with the Fed drove markets to all-time highs. 
speculation running rampant in markets. A massive short squeeze is driving markets higher right now. Um, how does this all work out? How does it all end? We'll talk about that when we come back from the break. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Be right back. You're listening to the Real Investment Show, realinvestmentadvice.com. Get by our website. Make sure and uh, sign up. November the 13th, we'll be doing a end-of-the-year market overview and update kind of uh, candy coffee. So if you go by the website, you can register for that. It's an, it's an online Zoom event. Tune in, and uh, we'll spend the morning with a cup of coffee talking about markets and money and where things are headed into the end of the year. Um, but one of the things that, you know, was interesting yesterday, of course, was there was this concern by investors about how the Fed would actually navigate, you know, this, uh, you know, policy meeting. Um, we all were aware, well aware that they were going to taper their balance sheet by $15 billion. That was well telegraphed. Um, the fact they weren't going to raise interest rates was well telegraphed. We all knew that. So what was it yesterday that was, you know, you know, so good about the announcement that was, you know, and this was really what drove the markets is, is, is was it going to be more hawkish leaning? In other words, we're going to talk about maybe hiking rates sooner than later or more dovish. And he threaded that needle on the dovish side very well, despite the fact they are tapering QE, uh, despite the fact that there is inflation in the economy, he threaded that needle very well with a very dovish statement on, you know, the potential no rate hikes, you know, kind of in the foreseeable future. Markets like that, because again, that doesn't disrupt the flow of, of liquidity in markets, at least at this point. So markets rallied to all-time highs yesterday. Very, as we talked about in, in the opening uh, segment of the show this morning, markets very overbought. We're more than two standard deviations above the 50-day moving average. I know, bunch of technical mumbo-jumbo. Just trust me, you're just stretching a rubber band as far as you can in one direction. That's all that means. And eventually, when you do that um, and stretch rubber band, it has to relax before you can stretch it again. That's just the way markets work. Um, the question is, of course, now, you know, kind of what happens through the end of the year. And for that, let's go to Michael Leibowitz. Mike, so what do you, you know, you were kind of thinking we might have had a hawkish statement yesterday. It turned out not to be the case. So what are you thinking now? You know, I, I thought he couldn't get more dovish. I thought the risk was to the hawkish side, right? He would mention interest rates or he would say that we could go more than 15 or something to that effect. Yep. And like you said, he played it perfectly. I, you know, he dismissed any mention of rates. There were a couple questions to him about raising rates and they're not even thinking about it. And he made that very clear. So here's what matters to the markets, right? The markets are jumping. Everyone's fully invested. So the question is, well, who's buying now? And the answer is it's people buying on margin mm -hmm. and it's mom and pop buying on margin. But it's more importantly, big institutions using margin debt. They're borrowing to buy. Right. right. So what drives that? Well, one thing that drives it is the fact that you can borrow money. So when institutions do it, they borrow money in the overnight markets or one week markets. So they're borrowing money for a day or a week, very short term periods. Those rates are zero. Right. So they're essentially borrowing money for free. They're slightly above zero, but they're essentially borrowing money for free. So when you look at buying something on on margin, it's okay. If I think it's going up, I'm going to make money. I don't have to worry about the cost of that money. But as the when the Fed goes to raise rates or the market decides the Fed's going to raise rates and they push rates up, that that becomes a problem for everyone using leverage. Right. And 
I think the Fed knows that, and that's why they're they're trying to ease into this whole taper thing. And they're trying to do it in a way to protect the markets as much as they can. And they've said as much, Lance. They've said that that we will telegraph everything to the market. We will not shock or scare the market. Mm-hmm. Again, what's their what are they what are they doing? And I think they're telling you what they're doing and why they're doing it. Right? They're not they're not worried about employment. They're not they don't care about inflation running hot. Their number one and two jobs are protect the markets and to ensure that everyone can take on as much debt as they ever need. Right. <laughs> yeah. But but he's telling you that he's telegraphing that message if you just read between the words. Right. Well, and again, you know, uh, for investors right now, it, and it's interesting, you know, what's been driving the market lately? It's, um, you know, been a massive short squeeze. Uh, we've seen this in stocks like Avis Car Rental, Hertz, uh, Bed Bath & Beyond yesterday. And, and, you know, these stocks that are heavily short are, are getting run up by a lot of retail traders and they figured out the game right now. So, you know, these retail traders have figured out that if they can that they can start to pile into one stock that has maybe a little bit lower float, doesn't have a lot of trading volume um, and they can start pushing that price up, then that triggers these algorithms on Wall Street to start to cover their short positions and they can create these big spikes in the market. Well, that that tends to lift the markets and we're seeing a lot of that really speculative activity in the markets occurring and 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 fundamentally very weak companies uh, but this kind of goes along with this whole you know kind of attitude we've created over the last really 18 20 months since the uh, pandemic shutdown where again the fed's going to bail me out no matter what so why not just take on all the risk i can take be the most speculative take a look at put call ratios at this point you know options some of the most speculative uh, activity in the market comes in the options market the put call ratio is back down to a record low which suggests that people are not worried about a correction at this point at all uh, they're taking on as much risk as possible you know this always works out badly but we keep doing it because we believe the Fed won't allow the markets to correct. You know, a five percent correction may be tolerable, but the Fed will not allow a ten percent correction, much less a twenty percent correction anymore in the markets. And you know, there's there's some reason to kind of follow into that logic because every time the market does correct, we start getting comments from the Fed about being more accommodative, or you know, they're taking action and increasing balance sheet expansion, or whatever it is. The Fed's become very active in supporting markets. Right. So, you know, I think one thing we have to think about as investors is, well, what could upset that apple cart, right? What could cause the Federal Reserve to be more hawkish? Mm -hmm. By more hawkish, I mean that they would taper at a quicker pace, that they'll start talking about interest rates. And while Powell said his words yesterday, and there's no arguing, he was pretty dovish, the Fed, there's a bunch of other, there's what, 14, 15 other Fed presidents, members that are going to hit the speaking circuit right. starting as early as today, I guess, maybe tomorrow. They've been blacked out for a week and a half. So we're going to hear some comments from them that are very different than what Powell told us. And the question is, does the market care? Is Powell the only voice that matters? And, you know, we'll find out. But the market is pretty stretched here. And it's almost looking for an excuse to to normalize and not normalize. I don't mean drop 50 percent to where valuations are normal, but I do mean to just get back to some basic moving averages and get back to it's already trend that's ramping higher. 
you know, like Lance said, the, the rubber band is stretched and it's got to unstretch at some point. So what causes it to do that? I think Fed speakers saying things differently than what Powell said is certainly one. We're going to get another round of inflation data. I don't know if it's next week or the week after. But what if CPI is running even hotter? Right. The market's going to start getting concerned that the Fed doesn't care about inflation. Inflation is going to run rampant and inflation is not good for companies. And it's not good for for the Fed trying to stay as dovish as possible. So there are some risks on the horizon. But, you know, we also have to acknowledge that the market understands that the Fed is pumping up the market, whether directly or indirectly. And that that Powell told us yesterday, this will continue. They're not going to take their foot off the pedal in any meaningful way. Well, and again, this is, uh, you know, this is going to be part and parcel of what investors are going to have to kind of deal with. You know, we're moving into the seasonally strong. You know, we actually are in the seasonally strong period of the year for markets. Uh, markets are very overbought here on a short term. Um, we do have some things coming up you know, over the next couple of weeks. We've got mutual fund distributions for the end of the year. That's going to potentially put a little bit of pressure on markets just as they distribute to, you know, issue out capital gains, dividends and interest. But, you know, that would set the markets up for a year-end rally. Certainly doesn't seem to be anything at this point of major concern um, for investors to become overly cautious. But, you know, as we've been talking about here over the last few days, a little bit of risk management is certainly prudent, you know, taking some profits out of some stocks that have had, you know, huge runs here. Uh, but looking for opportunities to, you know, add back to those positions if we do get a bit of a pullback. And we will. I mean, markets do, you know, even if you look back over the last you know, year going back to 2020, uh, March of 2020, you know, the markets had, you know, have had regular little corrections back to the 50-day moving average. It's been over 500 days now since we've had a correction to the 200-day moving average, which is one is now the fifth longest run on record. So, uh, you know, again, there's certainly con some concerns here that, you know, some event, uh, some exogenous event that we're not paying attention to could certainly cause the markets to, you know, pull back here in the short term and, and provide a correction that, you know, you know, is not not that big, you know, five, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 percent, not big enough to really spook the, the Fed to any great degree. But for investors that have taken on a lot of risk, it could be a lot more painful considering we haven't had a big correction and and quite some time. Right. And just like we talk about the short squeezes, you know, we can have the opposite problem where everyone is levered to the hill in a certain stock or the the index itself, and they're forced to sell because of margin. Right. So, you know, those short squeezes work both ways. And, uh, you know, again, there, there's a lot going on with the Fed. There's a lot going on with mutual fund distributions, uh, politics. Uh, so, you know, there's going to be some volatility. Again, it doesn't mean we're going to drop like a rock to the even to the 200 day moving average, mm -hmm. but it does mean there's going to be volatility. So, you know, buckle up. It's OK to stay on the ride. The ride is, you know, it's still a good ride. Jerome Powell told us it is. But buckle up. And if, you know, you have trouble with three to five percent declines, you know, it may pay to take some profits and just, you know, just have a slightly less less uh, position in stocks. And, of course, uh, you know, that's the, the philosophy we all have, as I was saying earlier on the show. Be sure to go by our website, realinvestmentadvice.com. And in the search bar at the top, just type in trading rules. And we've got lots of articles about trading rules, risk management, uh, rules to follow guidelines to manage your portfolio better. 
Uh, that's all on the website. Um, you know, it's a great source of free information for you to help you manage risk in your portfolio better. New articles are out from Michael Leibowitz talking about inflation, interest rates, what this all means, and you know how the markets you know adjust for interest rates over time. It's all on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. That's realinvestmentadvice.com. Make sure and register for the upcoming uh, Candy Coffee on November the 13th with me, Danny, and Richard talking about markets, your money, and more. Realinvestmentadvice.com. It's a rich man's world